This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Cthulhu. Happy Halloween, listeners. Well, if you're listening to this the day it's released, then a happy, very slightly belated Halloween. And if you're listening to it thereafter, happy whatever day it is. Now, we're not going to apologize for wishing you spooky season's greetings a little late, because we actually started celebrating All Hallows' Eve last week, when we discussed Orcus, Dispater, Hades, Pluto, and other chthonic gods of yore. Today, we're picking up that discussion where we left off, with the word chthonic, and a much more modern chthonic entity. Except he's chthonic in name only. As we mentioned last week, the word chthonic, that's C-T-H-O-N-I-C, chthonic, comes from an ancient Greek word. And that word is chthon. It means underground. But you might be wondering about the weird combination of consonants that start off that word. The same weird combination that starts off the word of the week, Cthulhu. That C-T-H thing. Well, that's a product of the fact that Greek words come from a different language than English words with a different alphabet and even slightly different sounds. And that C at the start is not a C at all. But modern Western speakers have trouble with that idea. In ancient Greek, the word Chthon is spelled Ki Theta Omega Nu. To Romanize that, to put it in the Latin alphabet we're used to, you replace the key with a hard C and the theta with a th. Now, every language has its own rules about how consonants combine to form new sounds. For example, that th thing is a special combination of two consonants to produce a new and different sound. And in the case of th, that specific combination was added to the Latin alphabet to pronounce Greek words. See, the Greeks had a letter to make that th sound. That was the theta. But in Latin, that sound just didn't exist at all. There are no words that had a th sound. That linguistic trick is called a digraph. It's a combination of two letters or symbols to produce a special sound. And sometimes they're even rendered as a single letter. If you've ever seen that combined A-E thing, well, you're seeing a digraph specifically added to English from Latin to add a vowel sound that Latin had and English didn't. When a digraph is rendered as a single symbol, by the way, that's called a grapheme. And when a new sound is created using two vowels together, that's called a diphthong. So when you see the letters A and E together in the word archaeology, that's a digraph that used to be a grapheme to bring a Latin diphthong into the English language because English didn't quite have the same sound in it. And by the way, that A-E thing used to sound in Latin like the I in pine. Because the Latin letter I was pronounced E. And this is but one reason why I have trouble with pronunciations. You've been warned. But we digress. The point is, in ancient Greek, it was actually perfectly fine to combine the consonants chi and theta. Whereas in English, we don't even have a theta and have to replace it with th. And we'd never put a hard C in front of that. And the reason the Greeks did combine key and theta was because we're actually mispronouncing the key these days. See, the Greeks have two very similar letters, key and kappa. And these days, 
Westerners pronounced them mostly the same as a hard C or K sound. But there was actually a very slight difference in the ancient Greek pronunciation. The kappa was completely unaspirated. It was a very short, hard sound. And key was aspirated. That means it had a drawn-out exhalation. We're exaggerating a bit, but it's the difference between saying brick and bricka. Which is why we say chthonic and Cthulhu instead of chthonic and Cthulhu. By the by, in modern Greek, as far as we know, the key is pronounced similarly to the ch in the Scottish loch or the German ich. But we digress. Chthonic. Dwelling underground, Hades, Despater, Pluto, Hecate, and even Demeter for part of the year, they were part of the Greek Chthonia, the underworld gods, the subterranean gods. That was their word for it. And then many years later, when America was trying to distance itself from its European origins because, frankly, it had had enough of Europe, an author decided that the word Chthonic was the perfect name for a dark underworld god of his own. And in doing so, he invented an entire new genre of horror fiction. So let's start by discussing the 1920s in America. The Roaring Twenties. And what many historians consider to be the true birth of uniquely American culture. Because you can't really understand Cthulhu without understanding the 1920s. And you can't understand the 1920s without understanding how Europe had lost its mind and had a nervous breakdown. We're talking here about World War One. Now, we could talk for hours and hours about the political climate in Europe that led to World War One, and we've mentioned some of it before. What it really comes down to, though, is that Europe was primarily under the control of a bunch of really big, very old monarchies. Britain, France, Russia, Austria, Hungary. And without going into too much detail, those monarchies, once ruled by strong and capable individuals, were sort of petering out. They were losing steam. Meanwhile, though, in the middle of Europe, a fractured pile of states that had resulted from the breakup of Prussia during the Napoleonic Wars were suddenly united into a young, new state under a powerful and capable leader. That was Germany. Meanwhile, industrialization and the development of new technology created a rush for new resources that led all of these countries to start expanding their empires and taking control of foreign lands. So, you had a resource rush and a military buildup, a young, upstart country looking for respect on the world stage, and a bunch of aging monarchies with hundreds of years of Game of Thrones-esque interrelations and alliances and rivalries between them. It was a powder keg of dominoes. If we can mix that metaphor. And all it took was what was objectively a comically blundered assassination that only worked by pure luck of a minor noble by a ragtag group of unknown rebels in an out-of-the-way corner of the Balkan Peninsula, and pretty much everyone was at war with everyone else. And no matter what Wonder Woman claims, this wasn't some great epic battle of good countries against evil countries. It wasn't the evil Germans versus the good Brits or anything like that. It was the collapse of the social order that had ruled Europe, and everyone fighting everyone because of, in the words of one ambassador, some damned fool thing in the Balkans. And to this day, historians are still debating exactly how everything went down and what really did what. World War I was an unimaginable disaster. It was war on a scale that no one imagined possible, 
That's why it was called the war to end all wars, and why we described it as basically the entirety of Europe having a psychotic breakdown. Because of the massive scale of the conflict and the introduction of all sorts of new technology, it left 17 million dead, 20 million injured, and devastated the infrastructure of many European nations. Now, the world had already been going through a big transformation when World War I broke out. There was that whole industrialization thing. That's why the face of war had changed so dramatically. The world was modernizing. And in a lot of ways, the war sped up those changes. With so many able-bodied men fighting in the war, women filled a lot of vacant jobs in the workforce. And that led to an increase in women's rights and helped the women's suffrage movement take hold. To maintain wartime production, which, sadly, was very good for business, factories modernized and increased their use of new technologies. In short, the war helped accelerate a lot of the social, technological, and cultural transformations that were occurring as a result of the Industrial Revolution, which we should point out, included very positive things and also very negative things. The rise of worker unions, for example, led to increased worker rights, but also empowered organized crime. Increased profits and new technology led to prosperity for many, but it also led to price inflation and a lot of unemployment. The unemployment, combined with new waves of immigration, increased racial tensions. The growth of cities was both good and bad, and so on. It wasn't all good, it wasn't all bad, it was just change. But while many of these changes happened across the entire world throughout the late 19-teens and the 1920s, in America, they had a unique impact for a number of reasons. First, America had gotten drawn into World War I only reluctantly. And although it had got into the war late and suffered far fewer casualties than the nations of Europe, there was a bit of a resentment for Europe as a whole. And Americans who had served in the war or lived in Europe came back bitter, cynical, and disillusioned about the world. And the artists and writers amongst them began to express that resentment in their art. This was the era of Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald inviting moral and social critique and satire. At the same time, though, America actually experienced a great boon because of World War I. See, while the infrastructure of Europe had been devastated by the war, America had been relatively unscathed. While Europe was rebuilding and recovering, America's productive capacity had never been higher. See, America hadn't really been a world player before. It had been in its own corner of the world, doing its own thing, figuring itself out, having civil wars, that kind of thing. But suddenly, America was rich, prosperous, and productive. And that is what created the unique period of American history that is known as the Roaring Twenties, a period of transformation and juxtaposition. Many uniquely American art forms, like jazz and American cinema, caught on during this period, and many of the greatest American artists were prominent during the same time. It was a period of progress, but also a period of materialism. It was a period of optimism. New technologies were appearing at a breakneck pace. Cars, airplanes, radio, television, new medical technologies, amazing scientific developments. It seemed like there was nothing science and technology couldn't deliver. But it was also a period of individualism and hedonism, of moral relativism, and the rejection of traditional values. And an era of bitter cynicism among the artists and cultural weather vanes who didn't like the direction the wind was blowing. Now, let's go back in time to 1890. In Providence, Rhode Island, a traveling salesman and the daughter of a wealthy businessman gave birth to a son. 
Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Even at a young age, he was clearly a very smart child. But when he was only three years old, his life was utterly disrupted when his father, away on a trip to Chicago, suffered a massive psychotic breakdown and was hospitalized. He died soon thereafter. Lovecraft moved with his mother to his grandparents' home, and while there, he was mainly raised by his grandfather, Whipple Phillips. Phillips introduced Lovecraft to classic literature, and Lovecraft proved to be a reading prodigy. At six years old, he was reading the Odyssey and the Iliad. At the same age, inspired by the tales of Arabian Nights, he began writing his own stories under the self-chosen pseudonym of Abdul al-Hazred. After several more deaths in the family and a massive fever, Lovecraft's formal education was disrupted by nightmares. Lovecraft continued to study classic literature and also became obsessed with science, but he also continued to suffer from headaches and nightmares that weighed on him. After the death of his grandfather, which caused the family serious financial trouble, he retreated into depression and reclusion. In 1908, at the age of 18, he left school completely and confined himself to his room. He rarely went out, and when he did, he only went out at night. He would usually sleep through the day, and when he wasn't sleeping, he was reading, and he might have remained like that, gradually wasting away, if not for a tiny, almost comical nothing of an incident that turned into a major war. See, in 1913, this writer named Fred Jackson wrote these terrible little love stories for a pulp magazine called Argosy. Lovecraft read them during his seclusion, and he hated them. He was so infuriated by the terrible stories that he wrote a letter to the magazine, eviscerating Jackson. The magazine published the letter, which Lovecraft had written in the style of an epic poem, and Jackson's fans were incensed. Soon, letters were flying every which way, attacking Lovecraft, attacking Jackson. It was pretty ugly. And in the midst of all that, Lovecraft's letters attracted the attention of Edward Dawes, the president of the United Amateur Press Association. Dawes contacted Lovecraft, and suddenly, Lovecraft was an amateur journalist. He gradually emerged from his seclusion. For the next three years, Lovecraft would publish a number of essays in his own and other amateur press journals, and he also tried his hand at short stories. And it was then that another author, W. Paul Cook, started corresponding with Lovecraft. And he started supplying him with various examples of a then-up-and-coming genre of fiction dealing with the supernatural and encouraging him to write more short stories. Lovecraft was hooked on the genre. While he continued to primarily publish essays in various publications, he also published two short stories in 1917. His first forays into supernatural literature, The Tomb and Dagon. Lovecraft became a prolific writer over the next several years. Living in New York, he also began communicating with other writers of the time, including Robert E. Howard of Conan fame. In fact, he is renowned today as the most prolific writer of the century, having written over 100,000 letters containing several million words. A letter is what we used to call email, kids, in case you didn't know. But regular work was hard to come by, and he suffered a number of financial setbacks that forced him to move back to Providence. And it was there, in Providence, Rhode Island, that Lovecraft actually produced the work he is most famous for. The reason we're talking about him at all. In 1926, he published the short story Call of Cthulhu. 
All of Cthulhu tells the story of Francis Wayland Thurston, who discovers the notes of his uncle, a professor of linguistics, along with a strange sculpture of a mysterious thing that's part octopus, part human, and part dragon. The sculpture was supposedly crafted by an artist in a group of madness, and based on dreams he had of strange ancient cities in some weird other world. The notes describe a mysterious cult worshipping the Great Old Ones and awaiting the rise of something called Cthulhu. Other documents tell the story of a ship that was attacked in the Pacific Ocean by a mysterious entity dwelling in an uncharted island in a strange city full of incomprehensible geography. Surviving sailors were killed by cultists, as was Thurston's uncle. And in the end, Thurston realizes he is likely also a target now, as the cultists are trying to keep the information about the strange Cthulhu a secret. And that was the beginning of the Cthulhu mythos. For those somehow not in the know, the Cthulhu mythos is a collection of all the horror stories that take place in the same world as Lovecraft's short story, The Call of Cthulhu. See, Lovecraft kept writing more stories with similar themes and expanding his fictional world. Their heart is the idea of the Great Old Ones. These are mysterious entities who exist in some different time, space, or spiritual dimension, and whose existence ebbs and flows with various cosmic forces. When the stars are right, as they say, these Great Old Ones can move between worlds and make their will manifest. When the stars are wrong, those beings cease to be. They die. But because they are eternal, they don't really disappear. They just exist in a sort of out-of-time, out-of-place space, waiting, mindless and unaware. Hence the hymn and call of Cthulhu. Pungluwi Miglnaf Cthulhu Rilia Waganagal Bitang. Which in the fictional language of the Old Ones means in his house at Rilia, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. Now, even though the first story is the Call of Cthulhu, and the universe is called the Cthulhu Mythos, neither that story nor Cthulhu are particularly important, either in the fictional universe or the real one. In the real world, Call of Cthulhu was just a first attempt. It established the world, but it wasn't especially popular at the time. Nor is it considered to be particularly important to Cthulhu fans. Even Lovecraft considered it to be of middling quality, but nothing special. And Cthulhu is just one of the many great old ones born of the completely incomprehensible, semi-formless, semi-mindless, malevolent thing at the center of the galaxy called Azathoth. And Azathoth's other kids, like Nyarlathotep and Yogg-Sotat and the Nameless Mist and Shub-Niggurat, are all far more interesting creatures. Now the thing is, Lovecraft was recognized in the business as a talented writer. But during the remainder of his short and troubled life, from 1927 to 1937, he enjoyed only modest success and suffered from a great deal of financial troubles before dying of cancer. But his works did resonate with other authors, and over the years, they influenced many other writers and built, appropriately enough, a cult following. And the reason his work resonated with his writer friends was because the themes in his work matched the zeitgeist of the time. Remember how the Roaring Twenties were typified by a sort of optimistic belief in science and modernity? But it was at odds with a bitter cynicism and biting satire coming from the intellectuals as well as a cast-off of European values and Western ideas? Well, that's precisely what Lovecraft wrote about. 
His universe was not ruled by traditional creator deities and moral philosophy had no place in it. Nor was his universe deterministic and comprehensible in line with the modern science of the day. It was run by malevolent alien beings who were completely beyond mortal comprehension. And any attempt to understand them would destroy the minds of humans. Neither rationalism nor traditionalism would avail you in the Cthulhuverse. You were doomed no matter what by a cruel, cold, chaotic, incomprehensible universe that would destroy you to your core. Fun, right? Yes, well, it did resonate among other writers and intellectuals, because it was a horror story of its time. And it was that resonance that really ensured Lovecraft's Cthulhu would be remembered, because other writers kept borrowing from Lovecraft's universe, or adding to it, or building their own. A lot of people don't realize that R.E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian stories and his prequel Cole the Conqueror stories are part of the Cthulhu mythos. Yep, Howard's Atlantis and Thule and Hyperborea are set on the ancient Earth of the Cthulhu universe. Because of that popularity, Lovecraft's themes became the foundation for an entire subgenre of horror fiction. Cthulhu horror, as it's called, or cosmic horror. And a lot of the names of the universe, including the name Cthulhu Mythos, were actually established by the Lovecraft-inspired author August Derleth. And his publishing house, Arkham House, was established to make sure Lovecraft's books stayed in print. That said, some diehard Cthulhu fans resent Derleth's changes and reorganizations to the mythos. But in the end, it had staying power because it resonated. The strange, incomprehensible Great Old Ones, born from Lovecraft's cynical mind after its recovery from a breakdown, and a small chance happenstance only stuck because it was written in a strange, paradoxical time when the world was recovering from a breakdown caused by a small chance happenstance. And things were never the same. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.